Hey, good morning, y'all. Good morning, everybody. Um, as y'all are finding your way to your seats, lots of chatter going on this morning, connecting with new people, enjoying some new friends is what I call it. So um, we're so glad that you were choosing to worship with us this morning. And um, one of the things that we love is that when we come together as a family, because that's what Jesus said that we are. He said that we're a family. When we come together, that his presence moves among us. And his desire is that you sense him, you feel him, you know him. And um, what I know in my own life is even when I don't necessarily feel him, he's still there, he's with me, and he's for me. But this morning, there's an expectation for us to experience his presence among us. So will you stand with me as we worship this morning? Heavenly Father, we come in the name of Jesus. Lord, thank you that you have exalted his name above every other name in heaven, in earth, and under the earth, Lord. You've crowned him with majesty, Lord, and today we've come to worship and adore and turn our heart's affection towards our King. Jesus, you are the lover of our soul. Lord, thank you for tender mercies every morning, Lord. You know what every person in this room longs for in you. And Lord, would you come this morning by your Holy Spirit because you sent him. You knew that we would need to be comforted in this life. You sent him because you said we would not be orphans. He is a guarantee, Lord, of the life to come that we may know and experience you here in the earth. So Lord, we bless your name. We worship you and we honor you. Move and have your way among us this morning. We bless you, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship together.
Make a dead man walk again. 
A, a scripture, uh, I'll paraphrase it for us, that it says not to boast in our love for him, but to boast in his love for us. There's something beautiful about this song. If you've ever heard uh, like the, the live album of the, of the people who wrote it and did it, um, it's incredibly, incredibly moving. Um, but it has a challenge to it as well. We talk about this with our worship team all the time about the songs that we sing. Because most of the song is about asking the question, um, Lord, what moves you? <laughs> and it goes through all these things that probably move him in some way, right? Um, our desire to love him, all those things. We're boasting in so many ways in the first part of this song about our great love for God, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. It's why we do the song. But there's a prophetic word at the end of that song that answers the question, throughout the entire song. And it's God speaking back to us in our question of, Lord, please tell me what moves you. And His answer is, you do. You move me. We think it's all the things we do. We think it's our righteousness. We think it's religion. We think it's reading our Bible. All those are great things and it's good to do them. But that's not what moved God's heart. I preached last week and talked about from the foundation of time, the lamb was slain. So when you think, you know, I'm, I'm just not good enough. I can never do enough for the Lord. Especially as a believer, you're saying, Lord, I'm, I'm trying my best. I'm trying my best. And you're feeling that guilt, shame, and condemnation, that low-grade fever that religion has taught us that this is how God looks at us. Remember when you go back to Scripture and realize that the first sacrifice was made before the foundations of time. Before you ever even came into existence, tried your hardest and failed miserably. <laughs> Before you blew it and thought you blew it too much for God to love you, remember that before any of you blowing it happened, before the foundations of time, a sacrifice was made for you. Why? Because He wants you. And He loves you. The Bible says that we love Him because He first loved us. So as we go into this next song and wrap up our worship time, would you take that perspective? And if you've been dealing with guilt, shame, and condemnation, maybe you were a jerk to your wife. I've done that. I mean, hardly ever. But if I ever did, I would. <laughs> maybe you just had a bad week. Maybe you just lost faith. Maybe a lot of things. A lot of things happened this last week. But would you go into this next worship song and just say, Lord, thank you. That before I could try anything, before I could even try Lord, you loved me first. And so it just makes me want to love you too. makes me want to love you back. Makes, in, in all honesty, one of the things when you do is say, Lord, I, I just want to let you love me. Can you maybe do that? If nothing else, just this morning, would you just let God love you past all of the reasons why he shouldn't and just let him do it. Let him just lavish his love on you in this song. Amen.
worship you. Lord, thank you that your blood, Jesus, was more than enough. More than enough, Jesus. It was pleasing to the Father, that sacrifice, that atonement that could never be fully satisfied from the blood of animals, Lord, was fully sufficient and more than enough in Jesus. Lord, thank you that there is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we would be saved. Thank you, Jesus. Your blood is more than enough. Lord, this morning, would you just stamp on every believer this morning, Lord? Would you just stamp on every believer, Lord, that they are clean, they are pure, they are holy. Jesus, that you have given them in righteousness, Lord. You've given them a righteousness, Lord, that they could never earn in their own good works, Lord. Our works are filthy rags, Lord. They could never, ever be enough. So, Jesus, your blood is enough to make us completely clean. Jesus, thank you that your blood declares us clean and pure and righteous today. And Lord, for every person who's not a believer, Lord, that Lord, that they would understand, God, that what you've paid, Lord, is more than enough to lift the weight of heavy, heavy sin, the burden of heavy sin and just missing the mark in condemnation and guilt and that they could never measure up. Jesus, draw by your Holy Spirit this morning your beautiful ones. You're beautiful ones, Lord. It's who you are. Thank you, Lord. We worship you. We honor you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, We have um, something this morning. If you'll turn your attention to the screen, we want to announce something this morning for all of us here. It's something very special for us. I once learned about a breed of horses in Europe who were bred specifically for one purpose, to pull the carriages of royalty. Now their breeding alone was not enough to secure them that prestigious position. They had to undergo rigorous training. There were vital lessons and tests that they had to pass. Learning how to carry themselves well, how to run in a specific manner. Learning how to block the cries of the crowd and listen to only one voice. They had to learn to work in team, as one horse could never pull the king's carriage alone. And once they'd mastered these lessons, only then would they be qualified for service at these high levels. Now, some horses would balk and resist the traces and the training and refuse to submit. And by their persistent refusal to learn from their training, they were released from the traces to roam the wide open paddock of the king. It was still a good life, but they were never used to pull the king's carriage. Now, in a similar fashion, as believers, we too are enrolled in a training process. Our pedigree is our creation in Christ, and we were designed specifically for this purpose, to usher the presence of our King into our world. I believe that you were created for significant endeavors. You are designed to usher God's presence to your world. My name is Greg and I wrote Prepared for Significance as a parable about a horse called Jethro who's invited to the trials to become one of the king's horses. It's really about this idea that as believers, God will enroll everybody he accepts into a training process. It's not just the fact that we're in Christ, 
that helps us. It's the lessons we learn that God wants to teach us to make us more effective in His kingdom so that we can be people who usher the presence of God into our generation. And this book is about the lessons that we need to learn and the tests that God will inevitably ask us to take to prove that we've learned those lessons. See, it's the dream of God for you that motivates His dealings in your life and it's the delight of God on you that motivates His discipline of you. God loves you and He's enrolled you in a training process. And I wrote the book because I see so many believers misunderstanding what is going on in their life. The tests are not because He doesn't like you. It's because He absolutely loves you and He has dreamed a great dream for you. Prepared for Significance is going to help you learn how to walk through and walk out into the call of God on your life. I think you'll find yourself in the pages. You'll, I'm hoping, laugh out loud when you see yourself and go, oh, I, that is so what I'm dealing with right now. I hope this book motivates you and instills in you a passion to keep going because God's dream for you is massive. There's a giant of a God in you and He's dreaming great dreams for you. And I hope this book will help you find it. God bless. Greg is very special to David and I and actually this house family. Um, and uh, we've been hearing about this book for many, many years. And uh, throughout my lifetime, I have read many books that have been phenomenal in uh, tools and help and leadership and my growth. Um, this book has impacted me more than any other book I've ever read. And um, if that intrigues you to grow as a believer and to walk in all that God has called you to walk in, I would say get the book. So um, uh, it is very much a book that crosses really all the borders, whether you're a leader of a, and a husband of a family, you're a leader in a business, you're a leader in a church, you're a leader in the marketplace. This book is designed to actually cause you to grow as a leader and um, and understand what are some of the things that you may be walking through um, in your leadership place and to fulfill the purpose and destiny that God has for you. So we're excited about the book, and um, uh, we love Greg and um, his wife Michelle and our Northlands family as well. So um, if you're new with us this morning, we are so glad that you are joining us. And um, uh, we would love for you to pull out your phone, go to dothancf.com, go to the connection card, click I'm new here. We'd love to get to know you. Look to um, find out a little bit about your story. If you'd like to, after service, we'd love to connect with you at the back or even over a cup of coffee, either one. And um, we, it, it's our, our joy to get to know new people here. You're new once and then your family, you know. So, um, also, we are launching our community groups, and they launch this week. So while you're on the website, go ahead and check out the community group. We're doing Gifts of the Spirit because... God has a, given us gifts through the power of his Holy Spirit to impact the world around us. And sometimes it is learning to hear and to understand and to grow in the voice of God and how he communicates to us so that it actually flows and filters into the world around us. And so no matter where you are in your walk in Christ, you can always grow some more. Can I hear an amen on that? You can always grow. There's always more for us to know and understand about who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is in us. I don't know if y'all ever think about this, but actually Jesus 
is sitting on the throne in heaven, and he gave his Holy Spirit to move among us and through us here on earth. And so we experience his presence as he comes and moves among us. He moves among us for each other. So we're going to grow in how he moves and how I understand hearing him, what he's doing, what he's saying. And y'all, if this is brand new to you, welcome. Come and enjoy. You know, it's like it's a safe learning environment. You know, it's lots of love, but also it is designed for you to connect with one another and grow and know and be in community and have conversations and relationships and have some meals and it's coming together as family and growing in this thing called, um, we call the life, you know, the, the kingdom life. So we want to grow together. Thrive, ladies. Pull out your calendars. Mark September the 15th. We're going to be having a wonderful evening here. And um, you do have to register. The event is $10. And we're going to be doing um, something that evening as a, um, it's an identity board. But it's at 7 o'clock here. You can get all the details on our website. But you do have to register. And we're going to pay at the door. So it's 10 bucks. So be sure and bring correct change with you. So we look forward to seeing you guys. We're going to dismiss our kids in just a second after we go over how you can give. So because that's my next prompt. So um, you can give lots of different ways on the website or um, person in person up here in the um, giving box as well. And then we're going to dismiss our kids and our youth this morning. And um, we will be right back with a message from Dave. All right. Good morning, everybody. We are continuing a series um, called First Things First. If you've been hanging around DCF for a little while, um, one of the things I started with is a scripture that talks about seeking first the kingdom. And if you do that, that everything else that you need, God will give it to you. And so often there's these, there's these things, we, we get things out of order. and We, wanna, we really want to focus on all these things that are second and third and fourth. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but we have to first fo- focus on the first things because that's what actually gives us the other things. And so often we find all of our energy going into these other things when if we put our energy into this, it's actually what releases the things that we're after. It's just really interesting how the kingdom works. Um, but I've, I've been preaching into it for uh, three or four weeks. This is our fourth week. And so um, today I want to talk about God's household. And I'm going to get into how that, how that looks like a first thing in just a second. But um, part of this is to remind you we've got an upcoming membership um, course or series of classes actually at DCF, and they start Sunday, September the 10th. So it's coming up in a, about a month or so. Um, we start with an About Us class, and so if you've been around DCF for a while, but you're like, hey, I'm curious about how they do uh, government and all those different things, how we do what we do, um, that's a class, and it's going to be, I think it's at 8.30 on, on that Sunday morning, so I'll, the details are on the website. But sign up for that. We'd love for you to be a part. If you've been at DCF for 20 years, and you, you're like, I'm not sure i I'm clear on everything. <laughs> this is a great opportunity for you to go through this course as well. Um, I preached into this several months back, and I did all three classes that we're going to do on the Sunday mornings. I did them in a sermon series, so you can actually go back and check those out as well. Um, but the reason why is when we first came to DCF about 14 years ago, January will be 14 years for Karen and I uh, being pastors here at DCF, um, we, we, we would had the opportunity to really do a lot of things. Like we could start things because it's a great, you know, um, moment, pivot moment. We could have changed the name of the church. We could have, you know, instituted all these different things and we could do it quickly because everybody's expecting some kind of change. And one of the questions was about membership. Hey, do we establish a, um, you know, an official uh, membership and organized as opposed to an organic membership at DCF? And we prayed into that and we felt like to do that would, 
wouldn't be helpful until the foundation of who we are as members and believers in the organic sense, in God's family, what that looked like, until that was established. And that's been established for a while. And so what we saw was it's time for us to really begin to make that official for a couple reasons. One is so that you would know what to expect from us. If you want to be a part of God's household, and we're going to talk about that today, um, how should you act? What, what should happen? What's the requirements? What, what are the expectations um, that leaders would have for you, that God would have for you for being a part of his church? But then also, what can you guys expect from us as leaders, those who um, God says he's, they've appointed us to be overseers of, of his body? So what does that look like? What's the dynamic like? And that's what we talk about in these membership classes. Um, and we do it for a reason. Uh, we go after this for a reason. Again, it's organic. Um, just because you sign a piece of paper doesn't make you a Christian, right? That's, I hope you know that. Um, just because you get baptized doesn't make you a Christian. Although when I do baptism, what I do is I hold you under until the bubbles slow down, and then I'm sure you've met with Jesus. It's just a tactic that us pastors use um, first time that was public. So, but the whole idea behind it is, you know, you going under the water and coming out of the water, if you were a sinner when you went down, you're just going to be a wet sinner when you come up, right? You understand how that works? But baptism is a symbol of something that has hap- happened to you internally. That's why we do it. And I love it when people say, well, you know, my faith is private. There is no such thing as a private faith. No such thing. Not in, not in Scripture, anyway. You can have that in your, you know, in your version of Christianity. But the whole point of baptism was you're, you're coming out of the closet. I hate to use that term, but I'm going to redeem it, okay? <laughs> you're coming out of the water. Maybe is a better way to put it. But you are declaring to all of your friends and your family and anyone that you've invited, anyone who sees, that you are identifying with someone in something. And, uh, and so your, your faith is never designed to be private. So don't, don't make it private. Nobody else's faith is private. Everybody wants to come at you as believers and say, um, you know, you just need to keep your faith to yourself. I'm like, I would appreciate if you also would do the same thing. I don't have any faith. Oh, contrary. <laughs> you do, actually. Sometimes it's, it's a word. I mean, I won't get into that. But the point is, everybody, everybody believes something, right, about God and who he is or who he isn't. So everybody has a faith. So don't let your faith be private. So... Part of this uh, class that we do, these there's three classes, there's an About Us, Membership 101 and 102. And what we do in the first one, again, is we just talk about a little bit about how we do what we do. And we always go back to what we try to do in our practical application of leadership and ministry in the local church is found in Scripture. It's found in the patterns that Jesus has given us, that the disciples gave us, the apostles gave us. So that's what that's about. But it, it, there's only one requirement for you to be a member at DCF. You have to give a lot of money. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's what some people think. One requirement is simple, and I put, it, I put it up on the screen. You must be committed to your own vital personal walk with Jesus Christ. In other words, you have to be a Christian if you want to be a member of a Christian church. I know that's super crazy, and you know, but that's what we ask. Confess him as Lord and Savior, right? So again, public faith. And then lastly, and this is important, submit to the yoke of his discipleship. In other words, there is a yoke. He talked about the yoke, that you put off the yoke of the world, which is too hard and you can't do it, and you put on a light and an easy yoke that Jesus brings you. But it is a yoke. And then it says, as laid out in the scriptures, you don't get to choose what that yoke looks like. (laughs) Too often in the church, it's like, oh, you just do you. No, you don't get to do you. God created you to be the you that he created you to be. And anything else is not okay. I'm just going to put it out there like that. You are incredibly unique, fearfully and wonderfully made. There's no doubt about it. 
But God says, hey, there's something I'm challenging you to come into and to walk into as a disciple of, of Jesus Christ. And then there are four expectations, and they're simple. There's a passion for transformation. And I'll get into these, obviously, at a later date. Commitment to community. That's commit, commitment to be a part of the family, and, and that looks like something. Uh, expectation three is stewardship of gifts. And Karen was talking about the gifts, not just the manifestation gifts. We are to steward those, and we're talking about that as we go into our community groups. But also your grace gift, how God made you to be. Are you a leader? Are you a teacher? Are you an encourager? There's a stewardship of that gift that God put in you, and there's an expectation that from that you minister and you, and you serve other people. The Bible talks about us loving one another deeply from the heart, and that's a way that you do it through the stewardship of gifts. And then lastly, generous giving. And I say this all the time when I talk about giving. Everybody gets nervous when we talk about money in the church as if, you know, we don't use money. We, like, have a special, you know, currency that we use in the kingdom. But that's not, that's not really true. All money is is an exchange for your time, right? That We know that. It's an exchange for your time or your talents and your abilities. That's what money represents. And so when we talk about generous giving, we're talking about way more than just money. Jesus gave himself. That's as generous as it gets. And part of that is your, your financial resources. But the biggest part of that has nothing to do with you giving to a God who has absolutely no need for your money. Can I just establish that right now? God doesn't need your American cash. He doesn't need your gold. He doesn't need any. He paves his streets with gold. So that tells you what that value is, right? So why does God challenge us to be generous givers? And the answer is it's more about what that does to us than what that actually does through our generous giving, although it works both ways. And so we get into that and talk about that as well. So what would it look like? This is kind of how I, wanna, I want you to think for a second. What would it look like if this became the community? What would it look like if people genuinely did love one another from the heart? What would it look like if every Sunday morning, rather than coming to see what you could get, that you came to see what you could bring? Right? From the rich stores that's inside of you as you mature as a believer, as you walk into the inheritance that God has for you personally, that from that rich store of, of you know, generosity that the Lord's poured into you, that you begin to pour out. What if you came and said, who do I get to minister to today? Who do I get to bless? Who do I get to encourage? Who do I get to lead? Who do I get to teach? All these gifts flowing through me, my joy. Who do I get to present joy to? Who do I get to lift up out of, the, out of despair? Who, who do I get to call out a word of knowledge from heaven and, and, and honor that, that word into that person's life? How do I do that? What would it look like if when you screw up, rather than getting you know, guilt and shame heaped on you, people come around you and go, hey, listen, I, I get it. Things happen sometimes. You fell into temptation, whatever those, what the case may be. And, and still they challenge you. go, hey, you, obviously you know that's sin, right? Like we always get accused as a, grace, as a church that preaches the, 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 the grace, the gospel of grace. They're like, if you keep preaching the gospel of grace, people are going to sin. And I always laugh when pastors ask, tell me that because I'm like, I just think it's funny that you think your people aren't sinning. <laughs> but what happens really is when you begin to know how much God has done for you, that begins to do something inside of you. Who The Bible says it this way, who has been loved much will love much. That's how it works, right? So um, there's this, there's this longing in all of us, I think, for this kind of com community that we, we know it should be, but sometimes we don't see it, especially if, if we've not been in a good, healthy church or grew up in a healthy family. We don't see what community could be. 
Um, C.S. Lewis wrote about this when he talked about the, in his book called The Abolition of Man. He goes after what happens when you try to take God, like Nietzsche said, God is dead. When you try to take God out of the culture, out of instruction, out of the schools, out of teaching, out of family life, out of church life even. When you begin to remove him, something begins to happen, and, and you can like it or not ha- like it, but it still happens. And this is a quote in The Abolition of Man. This is what he says. He says, in sort of a ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. He says it this way. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. And in one of the most prophetic things I think he ever said, we castrate and bid the geldings to be fruitful. If that's not a picture of today, I don't know what is. So the picture he's painting is, he said, you try to take away the very thing that you're, you're wanting it to create. And so the big challenge, we find this all the time, is most people don't have a, a problem with God. They have a problem with God, what God requires of them, right? And so, so everybody wants some version of God. And if we're honest, everybody has some version of God in their life, even if that version of God is themselves, right? I've become my own God in this world. So the, the truth is, though, we are the church. Um, I, I preach this all the time. This building that we're sitting in this morning, if you grew up in church, you call it a sanctuary, but you are 100% wrong. <laughs> because in the New Testament, there's one sanctuary, and you are all it. You are the sanctuary. The Bible says you are the temple of the living God. He lives inside of you. This meeting this morning is a meeting of the church. You didn't attend church this morning. You can't attend church. You can either be the church or not be the church. That's the only option. So again, it's, it's, it's built into our language sometimes in a confusing way that keeps us from understanding the truth of how God wants to build into us. So um, one guy said it this way. He said, the local church is the hope of the world. And I've had pushback. And when I've shared that before, they're like, come on now, that's Jesus right? And I'm like, like, listen to what it says. The, the local church is the hope of the world. The why of the local church being the hope of the world of, is, of course, that the church is Jesus in the earth. And Karen mentioned that earlier. We are responsible, right? We, when God put it this way, we are the only Bible some people will ever read, right? So our sphere of influence, the place that God has positioned us, you know, in, in this one horse town of Dothan, Alabama, or in a five million horse town of Atlanta, Georgia, right? It's just more horses and more traffic. So keep that in mind when you want to run away from your hometown, right? But the truth is, whatever's prob- whatever uh, creates problems in you that you're trying to escape from, from your hometown, you just take them with you wherever you go. Hence all the big cities and all the big problems, because there's a whole lot of problems, because there's a whole lot of people with problems. See how that works? So the truth is, being where God placed you, whether it's Dothan or anywhere else, you know, what do they say, the phrase, um, plant where, uh, or bloom where you're planted, right? You've heard that? And in a picture, this is what God's saying. I've on purpose put you where I want you. Now, you can ask to go somewhere else. At, at times, God's going to say, hey, the, the world's open to you. Go wherever you want. But there are specific times where God says, I want you to come here, and I want you to be planted, in this city, and then at some point, what he says is, I want you to be planted in this local church with local believers, with local eldership. And we talk about this when we get into the About Us class, that eldership in, the, in Scripture, in, in the New Testament, elders are the highest form of government in the local church. When Greg comes, and as you saw, Greg, Greg is a high-capacity guy, incredible teacher. He's just an incredible guy. I've known him for 20 years, and he's the real deal. 
high capacity, incredibly competent. When he comes here, he comes, he preaches to thousands and thousands of leaders all over the world. And when he comes here on purpose, he submits himself to our eldership team. Can I just tell you how humbling that can be? Right? When someone greater than you comes in and says, I've submitted to you and your church. I've got some incredible teaching. I've got some incredible wisdom I want to bring. And if we're wise as elders, we'll receive that. But God still holds us as elders in this church accountable for what he's doing in this local church. That's both um, exhilarating and terrifying. Let me just put it that way. And it's really all about in the same way that you, if you're leading your family as, as a husband or a father, it's the same way. You're not the ultimately, ultimate person in charge because if you're not sub- submitted to Jesus, why in the world would you expect your family to be submitted in any form at all to your leadership? Same with pastors. If pastors and leaders aren't submitted to Christ, why in the world would people want to submit to them? The answer is they wouldn't. So I want to start with three reasons why the church is the hope of the world. And we're, going to, we're just going to land on the, on the last one and, and spend a little bit of time on it. The first one is that we, tra- we carry the truth of Christ. First Timothy says it this way. Although I hope to come to you soon, this is um, Paul writing. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions for a reason. So that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. <laughs> So he's saying, you are a family. There's a lot of implications in that verse. You are a family. But so how you conduct yourself in God's household becomes the truth of Christ that we represent to each other and to the world. See how that works? He goes on, he says, which is the church of the living God. So God's household, this organic family, is also the church of the living God. That's ecclesia, the called out ones of the living God. The pillar and the foundation of the truth. So you are the church, and you are the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Represent Jesus well, right? I've heard it said this said so many times before. It's like I'm so afraid of discipling somebody or preaching or teaching. You know, the Bible talks about, you know, greater challenge coming from if you're a teacher, and I get it. But it's helpful to realize that God's not looking for another perfect example. He had one of those. That was Jesus. What he's looking for is a living example. So as parents, you know, you start out raising a child, anybody who has more than one kid, you guys, you all know you practiced on that first one. You got a bunch of stuff wrong. So God's kindness and grace, he makes them strong so they can handle it. And then, you know, I look at my brother was born 11 years after me and uh, he's like 6'4". And I'm pretty sure that, you know, that that because we were super poor, they never fed me any protein or I'd have been 6'4 too. But by the time my brother was born, there was more money. And so he ate protein all the time. I'm like, that's so not fair, right? (laughs) <laughs> but uh, he's losing his hair and I'm not, so I win. I'm just saying. I know that was wrong. I hope he doesn't listen to this message, but it's just the truth. So we're, we're called to carry the truth. The second reason is we're called to be the extensions of God's love. This is Matthew five fourteen. You are the light of the world. Not you should be. Hear that? Jesus didn't say one day when you get it right, you're going to be the light of the world. Nope. You are the light of the world, not because you're perfect and you've done everything well, but because there is a light that's inside of you that wants to shine out. And this is how he puts it. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Remember the whole idea about a private faith? There is no such thing as a private faith. He goes on, he says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. In other words, there's a reason for a light, and it's to show light. It's to, it's to push back the darkness. That's the reason for light. It's why you get so irritated with politics right now as a believer. Like, this is not right. I'm like, I know. 
<laughs> so be the light. Like, well, do, I, do you have the national stage like somebody? No, pray for those guys. But you have a stage. You have a hill. You, you can decide whether to put your light under a bowl or not. That's what Jesus is pointing out here. He goes on, instead they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way. See that out? In the same way. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. So see you living out this light and then glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, they see you living in the light and the way you do that as a believer is not to draw the attention to yourself, but to take what God has done inside of you and glorify him with it. One beggar telling another beggar where he can find bread. One person who found light telling a person in darkness where they also can find light. See how it works? Beautiful. Number three, we personify reconciliation. This is why the hope that we are the hope of, of, of the world as the local church. We've been reconciled to reconcile. You've heard me read this scripture many times. This is 2 Corinthians 5. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. That's how it worked. He reconciled us to him through what Jesus did on the cross, his life and his, and his, and his finished work on the cross. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. That is the most, that is the most beautiful context for redemption that you can imagine. That even though you sin, because of what Jesus did on the cross, there's now opportunity, if you believe and trust in him and submit to him, that all of your sin is washed away. Not pushed aside to be remembered later, but washed completely away because of what Jesus did. He's committed to us this message of reconciliation. In other words, what happened to you and your reconciliation to Jesus is now available to others. And then it says it this way. Look at this. It says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Not you should be, but you are. <laughs> as, as challenging as that is for us as believers. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. It's not as though. <laughs> it is, this is exactly how he's doing it. He's making his appeal to others through us. And it goes on, he says, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You can't make someone else be reconciled. You can't give yourself away for them because Jesus has already given himself away for, for them and he was perfect in every way. But you can let your light shine. You can do good deeds. You can be the, you know, the personification of Jesus and reconciliation in the world today. And this is what, what it, I really want to go after this morning. So I'm going to spend a little time on this one and uh, go through a scripture that so often isn't taught in churches. It's alluded to a lot, but it's not, it's not taught very often. But I want to teach it this morning and go after it in a deep way. And I hope it, I hope it will be really helpful. And it's found in Matthew 18. Uh, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. So I'm just going to read it, and I'm just going to comment on the scriptures before we finish out. It says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen... Tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, then treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. 
What's really interesting about this scripture, and there's lots, is so many people finish this passage, they say uh, at verse 17, where it ends with, um, if they refuse to listen, tell it to the church, and if you refuse to listen to the church, treat them as they would a pagan or a tax collector, and that's where they stop. But that's not the context of the scripture. The context of that scripture keeps going. And those other verses are, are part of this context, as a matter of fact. It's also interesting that this is sandwiched. If you go read this in its context, it's sandwiched between two different things. Talk, Jesus talking about lost things and then being discovered and then talking specifically about a lost sheep that if the sheep is lost, he leaves the 100 sheep, the 99, and he chases after the one, right? And so the picture is you ought also, even though you're a sheep, at some point, you also become a shepherd that's supposed to leave the 99 and chase after the one. The whole idea behind this is there is pursuit after this thing that's lost. And so often we start with the wrong thing. We start with someone wronged me. We start with, can you believe what they said or what they did to me? We start there, and Jesus doesn't start the conversation there. He starts with someone or something is lost. The assumption is what they're doing if they could recognize it, would cause them to understand that what they're doing is destructive to themselves, to the body, and to the testimony of the church and of what, what Jesus came to do for us. That's the picture that Jesus is trying to paint. So first thing he says is, in verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you. Can I just say, <laughs> if we just did that in the church... 99.9% of all the problems that the church would have would go away in a day. But so many people, and again, some of this is legit. It's the sense of, you know, you, it, it's, uh, it's kind of the picture of, of, of the, uh, what's it called? The, um, I can't think of the, it's a book. Anyway, it, it's talking about a bunch of kids who are on an island, right? And then there's no parents, Lord of the Flies. Thank you. I knew you guys would know. You guys are so smart. So in, in that book, it talks about what does it look like when maturity has been taken away and what it, turns into, it, what it turns into is tribalism, right? It turns into insecurity and fear and brokenness and unwholeness and sin and danger and, you know, America, <laughs> right? Or the world, pick your poison. But the whole point of this scripture, again, is if you would just go to that person and go, hey, I don't know if you know it, but you really hurt my feelings when you did that, right? If you could just go to a brother, I'll give you an example. We had a, we had a guy, um, neither one of these two people are here anymore, just so if you're trying to figure out who I'm talking about, they're not here, so good luck with that. So anyway, they, the, uh, the guy comes and he says, hey, I have a problem with this brother, you know, and, um, and I just, I, I'm just concerned. And I said, are you now? <laughs> I said, did you talk to him about it? No, 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 I thought I'd come talk to you. Dude, you skipped some steps. That's what I told him. I'm like, a lot, a lot of steps, like all of them, actually. So here's the thing. I'm like, maybe go and, you know, talk to him about it. He's like, yeah, but, but you don't know how he is. I said, oh, I do, actually. I know exactly how he is. And everything you're telling, telling me about him is 100% wrong. So now go to him and talk to him. So the guy, to his credit, does go and talk to him. And the other guy says, man, I am so sorry. I had no idea I hurt your feelings, you know. It's not what I meant by what I said. And the guy was like, oh, okay. But had I bought into, you know, taking the bait, 
Then when I went with him, I would go with this guy's offense, and I would talk to this brother. But I knew the brother, right? it, It wasn't that he was incapable of doing wrong. I just knew the pattern of his life, and he was a mature believer. And if he did it, he didn't do it intentionally. And if he did do it intentionally, when this brother came to him, he would realize what that did because it would break his heart. And he would repent very quickly, and it would, that would be the end of it. And here's the thing. I would have never known about it, and it would have never become a sermon illustration. <laughs> Which is how it's supposed to be. That's the, the whole picture of this is if you went privately and you said, hey, that hurt my... What, what if you, you, know, you said something? What if we flipped it around? Because there's another place that talks about... If you go to present your sacrifice at the altar, Jesus says it this way, um, and, you, and you remember that, that someone has, you know, you've either sinned against them or, or something is unreconciled. He said, leave your sacrifice, go reconcile, and then come back. In other words, the whole point of the sacrifice is, is that relationship. Like, it's not just going through the motions of, I've, you know, I've been showing up at church for 20 years, and I'm angry and been baptized in vinegar and full of, you know, hate, and I'm like, I don't, you know, I don't know what happened to you, but I don't know if you ever understood the sacrifice. See the picture? And so the picture of community has to start with what Jesus did first. It has to start with, do you know how much you have been forgiven? Because if you do, it becomes much easier to forgive other people. People come to me and go, hey, remember that time I did that thing to you, and man, you were so gracious, and you know, you were kind. And I'm like, nope. I don't remember it at all. And I, and I honestly, in, in, in my heart of hearts, I don't. And the reason why is because it gets absorbed into all the things Jesus has forgiven me for. And I, I can't even, I don't want to think about it, first of all, of how I might have wronged somebody. But I do want to think about it in the sense that I want to make that right. Why? Because Jesus was 100% kind to me. And when I didn't deserve anything, He gave all of it. He gave everything so that I could be reconciled to him. And if I can be reconciled to him, that's why I started with that scripture. How easy is it then to be reconciled to one another, right? So he goes through a lot of things. He he talks about pointing out the sin, right? It's like, you know, part of this is when you go point out a sin, the guy may look at you and go, well, you know, that's actually, this is what I meant by that. And you're actually the one who wronged me. Oh, well, oh, okay, my bad. I was hating on you, and it turned out I was the bad guy. Who knew, right? It's like a, like a movie with that twist ending, right? But how often do you do that? If you're really immature, probably never. You're like, no, uh-uh, no, 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 no. I have been wronged, and I need everybody to know how wronged I've been, right? Because that's where it begins, which is why the second step, step kicks in, <laughs> right? Jesus is like, I could see that going south, right? Because some of you guys are babies, right? I mean, he was, he was being kind. Like, I know some of you guys are immature and broken and still hurting from the world, still got patterns of brokenness that you feel like you have to justify yourself. You feel like you have to be right. You're insecure. I get all that stuff, right? So if it doesn't work out between, even between two immature believers, it's always fun when an immature believer goes to, an, uh, to a mature believer because usually they get schooled. <laughs> they're, they're like, um, yeah, let's talk about that, right? Let's have a coffee. And they're like, oh, no, not a whole coffee. I just wanted to Get out of here, right? Be right and get out of here. And, and they'll, but they'll speak into you and they'll disciple you and that's, that's a kindness, right? But when two immature people come, then what do you do, right? So if you're parents and you have small kids, you know exactly what this looks like. He poked me, he hit me. You're going on a trip, he crossed the line and the, the imaginary line 
that is like you know a national border right there with a wall coming up, and he climbed over it with weapons and poked me in the eye or whatever, right? And, and what do you guys say? Don't make me come back there, right? <laughs> so you're doing this second part. Don't make me come back and help you reconcile. It is not going to go well for one of you guys. Right? So this is the picture. And what's interesting is that first part, in God's kindness, is the most gentle way to, to bring reconciliation one to another. Why? Because first of all, it's in private. So you don't have to get your ego involved. You still can, right? But you don't have to let your ego rise up and have to, be, have to defend yourself. I, I remember, um, I'll pick on my wife a little bit. I, I never do this when she's not here, um, so don't tell her I did it. But <laughs> when we first got married, she did not come from a very wholesome home, nor did I, but hers was even more broken than mine. And so for a long time, she was defensive. And I would have to call her out on her defensiveness. I would, she would, I would say something, and she would, whew, man, like rise up with talons and like, oh, I am danger, danger. And, and I was. <laughs> but I was also right. So I was like, I backed up enough where she couldn't, you know, get me, but I also, I'm going to help her, right? But, but, but listen, honestly, I mean, even though I was immature too, sometimes there's the thing I want to be right. We all deal with that, have to deal with that. But my heart was, honey, you don't have to defend yourself. I'll defend you. I'll, I'll fight for you, man. I love you so much. I'm like, just pick a guy. I'll beat him up just because you point him out. I mean, he don't even have to do anything to you, right? And so my heart of love for her, when she got defensive, my heart was broken. You know why? Because there's no one I would, there was no one I would love more and that, that I love more than her. And I will be her defender. So why is she doing that? And the answer is because in the past, all the people who were supposed to love her didn't really love her. They loved themselves. That's what happens in broken families, what happens in broken communities. And so all these lovers of themselves, you know, it's like, like C.S. Lewis, you know, you take away the thing that causes you to love one another, and then you wonder why you get what you get. And that's what we see in our, in our culture. And can I just say this just briefly about our culture? I get mad too which is why I turn off my computer, my TV, my phone, my, it, those have, I know y'all don't think they have off buttons. They came with an off button. <laughs> you had to turn it on when you first got it, right? But so turn it off sometimes. Why? Because most of that stuff is just crap, you know, because it really is a bunch of insecure, broken, hurting people, sometimes high, I mean, competency, I mean, hugely gifted people that are babies, so one way you see this is you see a man who, who was, he, he was broken as a child, he was hurt as a child, he was abused, and violence was done to him as a child. And as he grows up, he stays a child inside, but he becomes this big 220-pound masculine, you know, 24-year-old man, and then his girlfriend or his spouse or whatever says something he doesn't like, and he smacks her. And all of you guys go, mm-mm, don't do that. Something inside me rises up when, a, when something, someone with that kind of strength acts in that kind of way, right? So and the point is it's amplified. Because of this man's strength, God designed this man's strength to never do harm to those he loved, but to use that strength to protect those he loves. But if you are insecure on the inside, when someone raises up against you or sins against you, or as the culture is doing, it's acting out exactly what it should be acting out if it doesn't know Christ, if, if the people of that culture and the leaders and the people who are in authority don't know Christ, would you expect any, anything different? 
The answer is not to go live in a commune. That's not the answer to anything. The answer is to be out among the world where the light that's inside of you can shine. You know how you know that you're getting good at this and maturing in this? When someone says something to you and all of your, you know, the hackles on your neck go up and you're like, whoo, <laughs> right? And you're like, let me take a breath. And, and you know you're growing when you respond appropriately rather than react accordingly. And here's what's so challenging. To react accordingly is justified. It is. In the moment, it's justified. You can say something back. You can rail against them. You can all that. But are you going to bring change to that person? And the answer is no. You're just going to escalate the violence until it becomes potentially real violence, right? But what you can do is if you respond appropriately, they don't know what to do. <laughs> They're like, that should have angered you. And if you're honest, on inside, you are angry. But the Bible says you can be angry and sin not. We talk about this all the time. Emotions are a wonderful servant, but a horrible teacher, right? Or leader or person of authority. So let your emotions cause anger. There's a reason why that anger is there. But you can do something about it when you respond appropriately and accordingly as opposed to reacting in the way you think you should. So just a sidelight. So it moves to the second thing. Second, if he won't hear you, take with you one or more two persons. Try again. This is verse 16. If they won't listen... Take one or two others along. I've heard people say this, yeah, you, you gang up on them. <laughs> and in a sense, that's true, but not in the way you think. right? You don't go, okay, I'm really mad at that guy because he, he sinned against me. So I'm going to go find some people. I'm going to find some gangsters that fl you know, fly my colors. And I'm going to take, take them over there, and we're going to do a drive-by. right? And we're going to have a conversation with them now about how they wronged me. That's, I mean, don't get me wrong, that happens. But that's not, that's what, not what Jesus is talking about. He said, take with you, and the assumption is two other mature believers, so that when you go and sit down with this guy, because you went to him, and for some reason, he didn't hear you. Now, there's a chance that he didn't hear you, because he's very wrong, he's deeply broken, he's now in defensive mode, his ego is all, and he's got to defend himself, so maybe that's why. But also, maybe, you're a jerk, and you went to this guy with a jerk mouth, with a jerk attitude, going to try to get a jerk repentance out of it. I don't even know if that's biblical, but you understand my point, right? And so you went there, and you, you went there with your neck up and just went after him. And of course, he, had, he got mad and won't repent. Now you take two other brothers with you, or brothers and sisters, whatever, who are mature. You better on, be on your best behavior because they're going to know. They're going to know. They are going to know, right? So you go in and you fake humility, and those brothers and sisters are going to see right through your fake humility and help a brother out by saying, you know what? I think the challenge really is you. You're like, hold up. Y'all go home. I'm going to get two other brothers to come help me, right? <laughs> Which, funny enough, I've seen happen. It's terrible, but it's true. But why do you think Jesus did this? It's a protective measure both to the person who's confronting the, the brother who sinned against them in private and it didn't go well, now you bring someone else with you who can help. They can bring, the whole intention for this is, you see this in Jesus, is there's a lost thing. There's a broken uh, relationship. There's a hurting brother, and he's acting out. And the whole picture Jesus is trying to paint is, I am doing everything in my power to try to restore them to health and wholeness and fellowship, right? Because it's helpful. 
But if, they, if, you, if you don't bring mature brothers and sisters with you, then you just, you just pick your teams and you fight it out, right? And, and, it's, and there are churches who do that, and all those churches end up splitting. I think the carpet should be green. Well, I think the carpet should be blue. And I'm thinking, why are you guys living in the 70s, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm just, my point is, is you just pick a side, and, and you never are willing to, to, to see accurately. And so Jesus makes sure, he says, this is the way he says it, if they won't listen, take one or two others along, and again, the assumption is they're mature believers, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Uh, now, let me, because we gloss over this stuff, but let, let me read it again. So that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, here's why this is important. I'm going to read you three scriptures in the Old Testament. Under The requirements under Mosaic law is... If you accuse somebody, one witness was never enough for that accusation to stick. Never. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, the Bible says if you want to accuse an elder of something, it has to be at least two people who accuse the elder. Otherwise, you don't even bring it because usually it's just your personal issue. doesn't mean elders can't go bad, and when elders go bad, it's the worst kind of bad, right? Because they're supposed to be shepherds, supposed to be leaders. But it says to protect what the enemy would love to do, don't ever come with less than two witnesses. Now listen to these three scriptures. Deuteronomy 19, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Numbers 35, anyone who kills a person is to be put to death as a murderer only on the testimony of witnesses, but no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. Deuteronomy 17, 6. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death, but no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. Why? Because it turns into a he said, she said. It also alludes to the fact that there is something greater than your argument. That right, you know, we, we hear right makes might, right? And that's not true, but right is still objective, even if our world around us wants to make it subjective. It's not. So there's something higher. So I, like I said before, it does two things. One, if the brother really is erring, then it allows people to, to, to come in and acknowledge, no, this guy, there's something seriously wrong with this guy. And he's not hearing this person and he's not even hearing us now. So now the seriousness of his sin should be made apparent by the fact that now there's three people talking to him where before there was one, Right? So if, if you've ever had that happen in school and, you know, you get wrongly accused of something, but then there's three people and then you're like, oh, actually I did do that or whatever. <laughs> It'll break down your, you know, your pretend world real, real quick when that, when that happens, right? And it's designed for that. But it's also designed for those two or three people to come in and look at the situation and judge it appropriately and go, actually, brother, you're doing something, you did this wrong. And so I want to I speak to this. Or maybe it's a combination of both, but what you find is very, very quickly it gets worked out. If the person is willing, both persons actually are willing. So what happens if that doesn't work? So first of all, let me say it this way. In 30-something years of ministry, I can count on one hand the times we've had to go to this next level. And that's amazing because the church is anything but perfect. I don't know if you noticed this. <laughs> we have a lot of hurting people in it. So, verse 17 says, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Now, before I go any further, I've seen churches where someone sins against a person, they, do, they go through the steps, 
they're, a little, they're leaning a little bit toward legalism and harshness, and so they don't give brother much of a chance, and then very quickly they stand up and tell it to the whole church on a Sunday morning. They're like, you know what sister so-and-so did to me? <laughs> and so now you've shamed them, you've put guilt and condemnation on them, and you've basically disfellowshipped them, which is what the Bible talks about. You, you're, you're taking away their ability to connect into the community. It has power, and it's meant to have this kind of power but it can be abused. That's why the, 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 the assumption in all of the Bible's directions in us is it is coming from healthy and whole people. And if you didn't grow up with a healthy father and you meet someone who's a healthy father, they will not look the same. And it'll take a while for you to learn what health actually looked like because some of the things that the two fathers did are similar. And so the Bible assumes health in all this. and says if you get to the point where you've done it correctly, you went and you took some brothers and sisters and they're like, yeah, man, the brother is caught up in some sin and he will not repent. Again, this is not just about being right. And I want to I emphasize this as much as I can, and here's, I think, the best way to do it. If, if it was just about being right, Jesus wins, we're all going to hell. So it isn't just about being right. Right is amazing, and it's something that ultimately we all have to be that because God is righteousness. He is holy, and nothing unholy or unrighteousness can exist with him. So at some point, right has to come. But the way it comes is through sacrifice. It's not through, eventually it comes through power. Of course, why? Because everyone has rejected any opportunity that God's grace has given them. And this is the picture that's happening now. This brother or sister who sinned has pushed back and said, I would rather be in my sin than be in your fellowship. I will not submit to the church or who the church is submitted to, which is Jesus. I would rather be submitted to my own ego, my own anger, my own brokenness, my own sinfulness, whatever. But that's what that person, and listen, that is a decision that they have made. It's not accidental by this point. That's why the power comes next where it says present it to the church. So what does that look like practically? The short version is this. Um, in this church, it, we would probably on a Sunday morning, if that went, ha it, again, it's never happened here, but if that happened on a Sunday morning, we would get up and say, so here's the thing. Um, there's a situation, as you, most of you guys know, because everybody would have felt the tension by now, right? Because it, it moved from the quiet thing to the two or three brothers, and now you can see the tension on a Sunday morning. Uh, so we want to address that. So now, and, and maybe the brother's like, I'll just show up at church. I don't care. I'll win. I'll just keep coming. Like, yeah, let's try that out and see how it works. So I would just say, so this brother, <laughs> super awkward, right? Like awkward starfish. He's like, ah, right? He's like, this brother is willfully sinning, right? Here's what happened. Now we're telling it to the church. So now as an elder, I'm, I'm, I'm doing what elders do, and I'm leading well, right? So I'm sharing this. And again, in 30-something in years, I've had to do it maybe two or three times. And so we would say that, and if they're here that day, we would let them feel the pressure of that. And then this is what we would say. It says, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. That's the ecclesia, the, ecclesia, the called-out ones. So what happens if you do this in a mega church? Do you stand up on a Sunday morning and go, that guy back there in that small group, you know, there's 5,000 people, you know, and you're talking, no, you wouldn't do that. You would do it in his community group, in his sphere of influence, anybody that was affected by his sin or who could affect him to, to bring repentance. 
you would keep it that small. There's no need. I mean, think about it. If you're not careful, you're like, we have to announce this to all churches everywhere of every little person who did something wrong, right? It's not going to go down that road. So, but there's, here's what happens next. It's tell it to the church, and if they refuse to listen even to the church. So the, in, the indication then is this, that now first one person, God used this one person to, to challenge this person on their sin because sin is destructive. Then he uses three people, that person and two others, to come to challenge them. Why? Because that person's sin is destructive to them and it's destructive to the community. Then you tell it to the church. Why? Because now that person's sin is now so rampant and so blatant that now it is, it is creating harm in everybody around them, including the fellowship of believers, right? It's beginning to be um, an apple that's left in, in the bin, if that may, a bad apple that's left in the bin. And so you tell it to the church, and then now the whole church comes alongside that brother, and you're like, maybe I have what it takes. I have a special relationship with him. And maybe from that moment, you go and speak to the brother, and it works out. The guy says, man, I wish you to come to me first. I'm like, shut up, just repent. And, you know. <laughs> but that happens, and I've seen that happen before. But what happens if they refuse to do that? Then we bring judgment and fire and brimstone and southern charm down on their heads, right? <laughs> Is that what we do? Listen to what it says. If they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Why? You can't have unrepentant sin and also expect to have the communion of the saints. They don't go together. You can't have the world's ways and God's ways at the same time. They don't mix. You can't honor the world's values and expect godly rewards or benefits while you're honoring the world's, you know, what the world calls valuable. But go back to that last part. If they refuse to listen even to the church, you treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So let me ask you a question. How do you guys treat pagans and tax collectors as Christians? Are you mean to them? Like, I don't go out of my way to go see the tax guy. <laughs> but I'll tell him about Jesus, right? I'll try to build a relationship with someone who has a terrible reputation in the world in the hopes that somehow my witness and who I am and what I can share with them and my ongoing relationship with them can bring them to repentance. And that is how you treat that person. So let me end with how we did this one time in a youth ministry. So I was a youth pastor, and, and I was part of a church. The team, the, the eldership team were amazing in every way. It was, one, it was an incredibly healthy church. <clears throat> and so we had this young girl. She was, she, was, um, she was adopted. She was from another country, and she was adopted. And so she was uh, physically mature, but emotionally um, stunted. So she was 19 years old, but emotionally she might have been 12 or 13, right? So just you can imagine. And, and she was growing. It was good. And she was part of some sisters who were also from that same country who were adopted, and they were doing well. And it was just a beautiful redemption story. And she, she, caught, she got caught online by some jerk who lived in his mother's basement, true story, um, who convinced her that he was God's gift to women and that she should come and, you know, be with him. And so she literally ran away from home. This was over, I mean, it sounds like he just did it with one message. He didn't. So he's a master manipulator, and he did it over time. She ends up running away from home, and, uh, and she goes, and she's living now in, in this man's basement apartment with his mom, which, you know, you can tell how immature she is because she's living with a guy in his mom's basement, <laughs> right? So, so 
the story goes, you know, we're praying, we're seeking God because we don't know where she is. Um, we're praying, and there's a godly policeman who's handling the, the situation. The challenge is because she's, um, she's over 18, she's considered a, an adult in the, in the state we're in. So there's not a lot that they can do. But this godly Christian policeman pursues it anyway. So the godly Christian policeman prayed. So, you know, he was probably part of Karen's... Uh, uh, spiritual gifts class because he got serious about it in his job even, not even at church, and said, Lord, tell me where this guy is. And the, and the Lord dropped a word of knowledge into this guy's heart, uh, and it was addressed in another city in another state. And so through some of his buddies, they chased down that address, knocked on the door. Guess what? That young man answered, and she was there. And so he was like, uh, <laughs> how did you find me? Funny enough, this is how we found you, right? So we also, in the meantime, Greg writes a letter and um, sends it to him because now we have his address. And Greg just, now I've told you who it is, so my bad. <laughs> so Greg writes a letter, he's the pastor, writes a letter, and he's very kind and helpful, but firm as a father. And he said, just want you to know, we know where you live. You've been doxxed. <laughs> he didn't say that. We know where you live. And you need to understand that even though she's, uh, legally an adult. She's a daughter of this house. And even though she doesn't have a father because it was a single mother who adopted him, um, there are fathers in this house who take fathering very seriously. And so I found out about the letter. I was traveling as a salesperson in my job. And I went to him and I said, I would very much like to go see this man. And Greg said, absolutely not. And I'm like, why? I'm safe. He's like, no, you are not safe. I can see it in your eyes because she was in my youth group and I loved her, still do. And uh, he's like, you are not going, <laughs> do not go up there. And I was like, maybe I'll just do it and I won't tell him. And I'm like, then I'll be in trouble. It's like, anyway. So she, they get wind of it. He recognizes that he has now put himself in a very dangerous place because he's taking advantage of this young girl and he's not sure how Christian we all are, which is a good thing, I think. Anyway, so he freaks out, tells her she has to go, throws her out of the apartment and she comes home with her tail between her legs, but completely unrepentant. So now she comes back to church. <laughs> and so now we didn't announce this in front of the entire congregation because the entire congregation didn't need to know it was a big church. So, but we did have conversations about it with the family and with all the young people in our youth ministry. So Greg comes through and he does this in such a beautiful way. And he comes up and he brings all of the elders up onto the stage in our youth ministry room. It's about half the size of this, maybe a little bigger. And all the whole eldership team is there. But Greg's the only one that talks, and he says, I, I want to talk to you about where we are with this young lady. We love her dearly. Our heart is for her, but she is 100% unrepentant. And he goes, our prayer for her is simply this, that that would break, and that she would find redemption, and she would find wholeness again in who Jesus says she are. She's, it's, not, she, it's not that she's not saved, and I want to hear this. If we did this in a church setting, that person, it's not that they wouldn't be saved, but they're acting like a sinner, so you treat them like a sinner. In other words, you don't, you don't have fellowship with darkness. You just don't. The Bible says if certain sin, if they're sleeping around the certain sins, don't even, have, don't even have lunch with them. Don't even eat with them, right? It's a challenge. It's hard, I know. But here's the end of the story. So he shares that, and all the teenagers are like, oh, man, how do we do that? And they're like, we love her, but also, you know, she doesn't get the benefit of all the things she get the benefit of. She was repentant. It's just the way it works. So... A couple months go by, and there's a, a pastor or a leader who comes to our church, um, guest speaker, 
And he was a very prophetic guy, and he would play the piano, and he would just listen for what the Lord was saying. And so he's playing the piano. We're kind of having a worship time. And he looks out, and he sees her. And she's sitting, as you would think. She's sitting in the congregation like this, just angry, mad at everybody, and doesn't see that she, you know, she fell for it and did it to herself. So just angry. Everybody's loving her, trying to. She won't let anybody in. She's just hard as a rock. And he looks out through a word of knowledge, which we're studying, by the way, in the gifts uh, in the community group that's coming up soon. So get involved in that if you don't have this works. In a word of knowledge, he looks out at the, her and he says, young lady, yes, you with the ponytail and this color shirt. And now she's like, bah, I'm about to get exposed in front of God and everybody, right? The prophet is about to speak and just tell my sin to everybody, right? And that's what you would think, except that's not how God is. So you know what he did? He said, I hear the Lord say, he misses you dancing for him. Whew, I can't, I don't know if I can finish the story. And everybody in that room, our hearts were like, we do do. Man, she would dance in worship, and she was, she was so graceful. She's like a ballerina, and she danced before the Lord. It was beautiful to watch the expression of worship and love, the expression that she had of being in Russia and, and being so broken and all the abuse that had come from that, and then the rescue that God had brought. And she would dance in her love for Jesus like this, and some idiot living in his mom's basement tried to manipulate her for sex. And, and this great love that she had, he, he brought her away with lust, with such a poor, poor imitation of love. And he says, my daughter, I miss when you dance for me. Would you dance for me again? And he just starts playing this melody. And she's got her arms crossed. And then slowly but surely, she begins to lower her arms. And she gets up and she walks around to the front. And she begins slowly, very slowly, just begins to dance. And then she starts dancing harder. And then everybody's crying. Everybody's worshiping. Everybody's blown away at God's kindness for her. She's crying. She dances literally until she dances out of her ponytail. And she's just, she looks like she's been run over by a bus. And finally, she just falls on her face. She cries out, God, I'm so sorry. People gathered around her and said, it's okay. And can I tell you, in that second, all restoration was hers. Why? Because she did the only thing that was necessary, which was to just say, I recognize what I've done. I'm sorry. And Lord, would you forgive me? You know, the truth of it was he'd already done that. So as challenging as something like the scripture is, as challenging sometimes as it is to be a believer in this world, God's ways are higher than our ways and they're better. But can we at least try to understand them in his perspective, not in our worldly views of how we do leadership in corporate America or how we do leadership in the army or how we do leadership in politics. There's a different way that Jesus wants to teach us. And if we get it right, we become the hope of the world. This local church begins to reach out in all of your spheres of influence because when you walk out of this room, you take the light of Jesus with you everywhere you go. And you begin to shine this light to where people go, I don't know what that is, but I want it. And even in this, the world looks at that and goes, I've told that story to unbelievers about that little girl. And they're like, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And I'm like, I know, right? And that's, how, that's his heart for you. And that's his heart for me. And that's his heart for us. Would you stand with me? I want to pray over us as a body. The reason I included this in first things first is, 
Some people come in and they are broken and hurting. And uh, they, their, their brokenness gets absorbed by all of your maturity. Your kindness, your love for them. They act like, you know, you can't see all my brokenness. They're like, I totally see it because I had it too. <laughs> right? And we just absorb that. But sometimes they think that they can continue to be that and also have this. Right? And what they recognize is, if they're not careful, is in coming in and not letting go of that and also wanting this, is you can't have both of them. So at some point, they become, if they are unrepentant in a a church, they become this thing of they're trying to bring the world's ways and still get God's benefits. And you can't. And that's the point of community is we all live that out before them and say, man, we love you but you can't keep doing what you're doing. It's destructive. Here's how we put it as a leadership team so you know you're protected. As, as elders, we say, um, as long as people are sheep, gnawing on sheep, welcome to the church. If you've never been sheep bit, you've never been to church. If, if you want to get really sheep bit, become a pastor. They bite you all the time. It's just, it's just you, you become sheep chewing gum. It's just how it works. But you're tough as nails, right? And God's in you, so you're okay. <laughs> that was a side note. But my point is, is that what it also does is at some point, our love for people will break down their brokenness and bring them into hope and bring them into their future and bring them into their inheritance and bring them into Christ because that's where all that comes from. So we're going to get that. People are going to come in. But as, as elders, what we say is as long as a sheep is gnawing a sheep, that's okay. But the moment a sheep begins to be a wolf, and gets really sharp teeth and begins to tear, the other side of the shepherd's staff comes out. And we're like, you don't get to do that here. You want to see my wife come unglued? Touch the bride. She, she can be as kind as you've ever met, but she can be fierce like a lioness if the bride is touched. And me too, and every other leader in our church. So I want us to pray. God, send us those broken people, but give us wisdom to to absorb the brokenness and the hurt with our maturity and our reconciliation, but ultimately to bring reconciliation and change and transformation to them. So now there's a greater impact because now as a larger church, as more people, we're reaching out further and further into the spheres of influence. That's my hope and my prayer, and that's why we do what we do. Amen? So let's pray. Jesus, Lord, first of all, thank you for just seeing me, Lord, seeing, having any hope, Lord, that I could be changed. Lord, like Paul, I think sometimes I'm the worst of all sinners because I see it so accurately, but I also see your great redemption. And Jesus, I just say thank you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for redeeming me. Lord, thank you for not just taking me to heaven right away, but Lord, leaving me here to be part of the mission to see the unreconcilable become reconciled through what you've done in my own life. And so, Jesus, we as a body say yes. Send the broken, send the hurting, Lord. But, Lord, help us to absorb that with wisdom and maturity and to be fathers and mothers, Lord, who love the way you love, Lord, by challenging, by accepting, but never by just being passive. So, Jesus, that's our hope and our prayer. Would you do that in us? And would you cause your kingdom to grow? As many sons come to glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer this morning, we are available up here in front. Our team, we'd love to pray for you. Otherwise, have a wonderful week.